This episode is brought to you by Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online, fast, and easy with Serve HQ. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to episode 224. Today, our guest is Todd Bolsinger. Todd is a seminary professor at Fuller Seminary, and he is a very gifted author. Todd has written a couple of great leadership books, one entitled Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory, and his latest book, Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change, is so applicable for what leaders have faced over the last couple of years. I love my conversation with Todd, and I think you will as well. I want to encourage you to check out our sponsor's website, servehq.church. They're an incredible organization that really helps you create automated tools to make onboarding new volunteers and church members fast, easy, and consistent. So make sure you check out servehq.church. Well, here's my conversation with Todd Bolsinger. Well, Todd Bolsinger, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, I, I, I want to get to your bio here in just a second. Before we get going, I have just kind of a nagging question, and that is for our audience that can't see the copy of the book I have in front of me, you spell the name Todd with only one D. Why is that? I do. I do. That was something my parents uh I am Todd with one D. My brother is Scott with one T. I like to say that, you know, in a world where not everybody gets D in their name, I shouldn't take two. Like, so it's, um, <laughs> that's good. That's good. I figured you might have some kind of clever retort because you've probably been asked it many times. So yeah, yeah. great. Well, listen, thanks for being on the show. Tell our audience who you are and what it is you do. Yeah. So, um, I am, um, I am a professor of leadership formation at Fuller's Theological Seminary. Um, I run a thing called the Church Leadership Institute. And I have my own consulting and speaking company called A.E. Sloan Leadership. Um, basically, I wake up every day helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. I work entirely on that problem in a rapidly disrupted, changing world. How can people of faith bring faithful change? That's what I do. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a... A fascinating study and also a daunting one as well. So, I, I mean, I, I love your story because you're not just a, um, you know, an academic person that sits around and thinks about it. You've done it, yeah. and you led in local ministry for for many, many years. And now you're kind of observing this uh, firsthand uh, through Fuller, which um, I, I love that idea, and I love your latest book. But before we get to that, I want to talk about just kind of. The headspace behind this. I mean, why yeah. why dedicate your life behind working with leaders so much? What was it that intrigued you so much about this? Yeah. So um, when I so I was a pastor. So for ten years, I was at Hollywood Presbyterian on their staff. They took me on their staff when I was twenty three years old. I was the college director. I'd been working for Campus Life doing youth evangelism. Uh, they took me on their staff and they said, "Hey, we're gonna we'd like you to be our college minister, and we'd like you to we're gonna send you to seminary." And we're going to pay for it because you are going to run out of those little youth talks you do by Christmas. And, <laughs> and you need to learn how to teach the Bible. And so um, I ran out of them by Thanksgiving. So I was thrilled. Uh -huh. And um, what I realized was they invested in me when I was little more than just enthusiasm and arrogance. And so 
that sense of investment in me as a leader. They saw something in me that was important and interesting. And what I found is in all my ministries, whatever I was involved in, I was pastoring a church, leading a team. I was always about the same thing, like what had been given to me, I wanted to give to others, which was to invest in leaders. So um, work. Oh, I went from Hollywood Press to San Clemente Presbyterian, where I became the senior pastor at 33. Um, then I was there for 17 years. They literally grew me up as a pastor, and I got to help grow their church up. And in the middle of that process, I remember a time when we had had a several years of growth. We were going in a really nice trajectory in the ways that you'd want to have the church go. And my best leaders were starting to drop out of leadership. Hmm. And I didn't know what to do with that because everything's up and to the right the way it's supposed to be. And yet the morale was going down. And I brought in this group to help me understand it because I couldn't figure it out. And what they said to me was, you have unconsciously communicated to everybody here that they're participating in your ministry. And they're going to let you do that because they're so grateful that the church is going well but this doesn't bode well over time. Really good leaders are committed to wanting to do what God wants them to do in their lives. And unconsciously, I say that I, I was kind of creating Todd Bolsinger Ministries at San Clemente Presbyterian Church. And, hmm. and what I realized at that time was I needed to rethink the entire notion of leadership. I had to rethink for a rapidly changing world. How do you lead? How do you bring people together for challenges that are beyond your best practices that require you to learn as you go, that are going to be costly and that are going to keep people, the best people engaged? And so I not only was committed to leadership formation of others, but I had to keep being committed to my own growth as a leader. And so uh, this really became the center of my sense of calling. And um, I went back to Fuller because that's what seminaries do. They develop leaders and um, I helped, I, and then I, now I get to basically every day work on helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. And I, I love the work. I just absolutely love the work. Um, after 27 years of doing a deep dive in two congregations, now I work with church. I work with the body of Christ as broad as you can imagine it. Hmm. And it's pretty wonderful, actually. I have a feeling you and I are near the same age because I've been in ministry just about as long as uh, you have been. Um, so I'm assuming that you and I are, we're just having that feeling of, I look around and I think, A, our world has changed. B, COVID has fast forwarded everything. And C, the young generation of leaders, is, they think about church and life so much differently than I do. What are some of the, just off the top of your head, like, man, this is different now than it was when I was at you know, back in my day, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. The, the single biggest difference, and it was already beginning. I mean, we're both in California. So in one sense, we've been ahead of the curve of the rest of the culture. But the single biggest difference was um, up until I would say around the 1990s, late 1990s, you could assume that Christianity had a home court advantage wherever yep. it was. Yep. You could just go into any culture, right? Um, even today, we're having these kind of conflicts. But up until around the turn of the century, you could assume that like in every town, you go to small towns in America, there's like a courthouse and a library and the first church that got there first, first Baptist, first Lutheran, first Presbyterian, and all the other first churches are all on second street. Because what everybody assumes is the, the society should be arranged around law, education, and religion. And they assume that to be Christian religion, even if they weren't Christians. Yep. So we learned how to do ministry with a home court advantage. Yeah. Now we live in a world where 
there is no advantage. There's no home court. It's all neutral space. And that changes the way in which you think about ministry. And, you know, the mission field is no longer over seawater. It's across the sidewalk. And you can't assume that people are going to grow up in the church, rebel during their 20s, and come back when their kids get baptized. Like all the statistics are going the other direction. And most of us weren't trained for that world. We just weren't trained for that world. Um, I work at a seminary and people say, would say to me, seminary didn't prepare me for this. Hmm. And so I began to realize the biggest shift that's happened now is that what I just described, that thing I just described took a generation. In the last 20 years, it has accelerated. And in the last two, we've accelerated even further. Hmm. And now the biggest disruption is the speed of change. So there was one organization that has done a bunch of tracking, like, like where they expected the church to be at certain years. And I heard a person say, every measure that we thought was going to be true about the United, about the United States church in 2027 is now here in 2022. Wow. So COVID literally cost us five years. Like just think about like, Blink and five years of strategy, planning, strategic planning, prayer, fasting, preparing, just got lost. Mm. And now we're having to be, catch up. And that's that change of cultural status and the speed of change are two genuinely huge disruptive things. Um, and I could say I could say more, but yeah. Uh, I, I love that. That's so clarifying. Uh, now, I'm, you got me curious here, and I'm way off script, so we're just gonna <laughs> just gonna riff for a little bit, and we'll see what happens. We may cut it out later. Okay, so I, I remember back when I started in ministry, we were all going through the, what we called the worship wars. You know, it was all about moving from hymns to choruses and choruses to songs, and now there's a band on stage versus a choir and all of that, and people lost their minds over that. Yeah. I long for those days. Exactly. You know, wasn't that, wasn't that for sweet? a good argument about, you know, <laughs> how fun? many verses are we going to sing? Yeah. yeah right, right. <laughs> what are the major changes? Because you talk about you're trying to help leadership change. What are the major changes that our churches are facing right now? What are, what's staring them in the face? Yeah. Well, um, the single biggest change, this rapid transition. I mean, most of us, uh, if you remember back to the 1990s, like um, Wayne Gretzky was the greatest hockey player and he came to Los Angeles, right? And so all of a sudden, yep. LA became a hockey town for a few minutes. And yeah. people used to always quote Wayne Gretzky, where he said the trick to being a great hockey player or great at anything is skate to where the puck is going. Right. A visionary leader 20 years ago was someone who could glimpse at the world and say, I think this is the trend. We need to go that way. And people would resist because they couldn't see it. So the worship wars is a good example. Like today, can you imagine even today arguing over forms of worship? I mean, it barely happens. It happens in some churches, but not in the same way. Why? Because basically everybody figured out that whatever is most singable, we're going to do. Yeah. So even contemporary worship leaders figured out that hymns could be really singable. Like participation became important. So you could look to the future and you could predict and go there. Today, skate to where the puck is going. We now live in a world with five pucks going in five different directions. Hmm. You can't possibly get there by predicting. So you need a totally different way of going at it that most of us weren't trained how to do. So 
I, I was asked to speak at a conference in Texas um, with Carrie Newhoff, and their whole thing was called, you know, it was a, they called it uh, the Church 2030. Mm. And they were trying to ask, where's the church going to be in 2030? And my answer was, that's not what I do. I don't predict. I teach people how to prototype. Mm. Prototyping is where you teach people how to experiment and learn one step at a time. Figure out what the next thing is and do it faithfully. Figure out what you learn and go from there. This notion of having to be a church that is continually learning, which means you have to have leaders who have the humility to stand in front of a group of people and say, I don't have a perfect solution. I don't have a five-year plan worked out. What we're going to do is we're going to be faithful to our values and we're going to learn to take one step at a time as we go to be faithful to the future. Man, that's re for, for some of our older members, this is really hard because they thought the perfect leader is the person with the vision and the plan. Um, give us the plan. Give us the picture. And today what we're saying is let's pay attention to the pain and let's do experiments, prototypes, cheap, modest, safe experiments to get ourselves there. Can you share with us some of those experiments? What should yeah. What are you seeing some churches give a try to? So during the pandemic, one of the things that I had, I, I, so I'm on uh, March 13, 2020, like everybody else, I got disrupted. Like I was, I was doing about a hundred thousand miles a year on planes, traveling to places, speaking. And all of a sudden in the Denver airport, they gave me a Clorox wipe and told me to wipe down my own seat because I needed to help <laughs> keep this plane safe for the, from the coronavirus. And I remember thinking, uh -huh. we're at 30, you guys keep people safe at 30,000 feet and you need my help. This is work. This is real. This thing's real, right? Yeah. What happened was it immediately shut down and every church I knew in that weekend started messing around with what we would have called a television ministry. It was called Facebook Live, right? And so right. what you realized is technology. Everybody has to figure out what you're going to do with technology. Everybody's going to have to figure out what, what are you going to do with discipleship? We now live in a world where an, an active church member shows up at worship 1.9 times a month. Mm. We're in, so you can't just preach. If you preach to them and you preach a 30-minute sermon, you get two times a month, you get an hour a month, you get 12 hours of formative content in somebody's lives. Most people get more than 12 hours of podcasts in a week or radio shows. Like people forming us are totally different. Hmm. So the experiments are now like, how can you engage people in discipleship? How do we rethink community? What is community when we all can just disconnect into little like-minded groups all the time. Um, the, the, the pandemic revealed these pervasive, huge underlying problems that have been there forever. And yet they just became really real. To me, the pandemic was almost like apocalyptic. It, it was revelatory. It revealed what was there. And it revealed a crisis of discipleship, hmm. a crisis of community, a crisis of leadership development. I mean, remember when they used to say, hey, 20% of the people did 80% of the work? Every pastor I know would take that deal. Like if I can get 20, <laughs> I would take that deal. If I can get, today Those it's would like, be good that's, good, like, that's a good number, right? So you start realizing that experiments are all around those areas. How do we disciple people? How do we develop leaders? How do we build a sense of community in a world that is where almost none of the cultural pieces are helping us? We're going to have to create a different kind of, 
of way of doing that. And that's, that's where we're beginning to see some of this work being done. Okay. So we get to your work, two great books, great books, Canoeing the Mountains and now Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, we have leaders out there experimenting, they're trying, and, and they're just getting their heads handed to them by the people that have, are trying to uh, bring back the past or get things back to normal, which was post or which was pre-COVID. Yeah. And it's difficult. And now yeah. you throw into that a good heaping helping of, of politics and yep. racial divide. And, oh, now Roe v. Wade is out there. So we got all this stuff everybody's incensed about. Yeah. Walk us through Tempered Resilience, because I can't think of a better book at a better time than this right yeah. now. Yeah. So, so when I wrote Canoeing the Mountains, it was really a book about how do you lead when you can't rely on the old maps? Basically, that's the whole metaphor. How do you lead when you're in uncharted territory, when the old best practices won't work? You're going to you're gonna have to prototype, learn, discover as you go, right? Mm-hmm. What I found is five years of traveling around the country speaking about that, everybody wanted to talk about the one chapter in the book that was on sabotage. <laughs> There's this <laughs> notion that is in the book that it comes out of the, all the leadership literature and is shared by a guy named Ro- Edwin Friedman, who was a rabbi, who said, the most important aspect of leadership is preparing for sabotage. It's that your own people who ask you to lead them will turn on you whenever it becomes really costly. And he believed it happened 100% of the time. Like, like just the normal pattern is you, you prepare people for a change, you make a change, they agree to the change, then they sabotage you. Yeah. And so that for leaders was soul sucking. I mean, when I started talking to leaders around the country, they literally would say, this is the moment. And, and just think about how many times this happened in, in a pandemic. I've got a coaching and consulting client. Their church has grown in every measure. They did a $13 million building campaign. They were exploding out of the sanctuary. He turned their church around. They are so excited. Um, in the wake of George Floyd, their Southern church, he said, don't you believe it's time for us in the name of justice for us to at least understand that we have a history of racism in our past that probably makes it hard for our neighbors to trust us? Isn't it time that we just acknowledge that, started reaching out to our neighbors, tried to be part of the healing of this world in the name of the justice that we see in places like the book of Amos. And he got 20 pages of emails the next day complaining that he was woke and political. He said, woke and political. I quoted Amos. (laughs) 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 Like, and, and what it really was, that was soul sucking. Yeah. So, so tempered resilience is really about a way you think about a tempered tool, a chisel, not a hammer a chisel that in the words of Dr. King that I quote in the book can hew stones of hope out of a mountain of despair, hewing stones of hope, chiseled tempered tools are tools that are strong and flexible. And there's a, and what we discovered is by looking at the literature, both uh, leadership literature and formation literature is that's a process of formation that happens in the life of leaders when they are facing the mountain of despair. Like when you're in the crucible of leadership, when it gets hardest is the moment where with the right approach, you can begin to be formed to become somebody who can secure stones of hope out of the mountain of despair. And that's the, that's what tempered resilience is about. 
Well, it's such a, a valued word because our assumption is, A, no one else is feeling this like I am. Yeah. And B, I just need to leave. I need to get out of ministry or go get ministry a different place, and then I won't have these problems. But you're telling us it's rampant. Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you also know how tricky it can be to onboard and equip people for your team. What if there was a resource that made it easier? Let me recommend ServeHQ to you. ServeHQ is simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. Check it out at servehq.church. Now, back to our conversation. Get out of ministry or go get ministry a different place and then... I won't have these problems, but you're telling us it's rampant. Oh yeah, no, it's um, and it's not only rampant; it's biblical, right? So when I when I teach on this, people always say to me, "Oh my gosh, what is it about today that we can't trust in the leader?" I go, "Well, let me take you back to oh, the greatest miracle in the Bible before the resurrection, the Exodus, like right after the." the parting of the Red Sea and the people of God are freed because they go through on dry land and the Egyptian chariots follow them and then are destroyed. So here you are, enslaved people who are now free and the army that is chasing them is destroyed. They are completely free. They praise be to God for Moses. And six weeks later, it says six weeks, it says it in Exodus. Six weeks later, they're saying, you know, Moses, I didn't realize we were going to be camping. I didn't realize we were going to be outside. This wilderness thing. You know, slavery. They killed our children, but we did have leeks and onions for lunch. Maybe we should go back. And they literally, it says, Exodus 16.3, the people complain against God and against Moses. Oh, my gosh. Six weeks. Six weeks. I start realizing this is what Ed Friedman was trying to teach us, that sabotage is normal. It's natural. It's to be expected. It's not the bad things that evil people do. It is the human things that anxious people do. And when people get really anxious, they just want to go home to mama. They want to return back even to slavery. And that's what we're seeing happen at church today. People saying, oh my gosh, we got to get back to the church the way it was. I'm mean, like, when? Like in 2019? Like when? We've been losing the younger generation for over 20 years yep. at a rate of a million young people a year. Yeah. You want to go back to that church? Right. Like where do you want to go back to? Right. I love that line in the book that you just quoted about it. It is, it is the normal thing that people do. And... You talk in the book about the the moment we start feeling re- resistance. Um, you know, we do want to go back to what is familiar yeah. and family, same root word. Yeah. We get back to kind of what we feel like. Uh, you know, it's bad, but at least I, you know, dance with the devil. You know, right, right, right. right. Yeah, it's it's really about being. When we start realizing is is when people feel unfamiliar in the unfamiliar where they feel unfamilyed, they feel abandoned. And that's why I think pastors, when they when you when you challenge them to take on something new, whether it's 
a praise song instead of a chorus, right? A worship, it's a hymn. Or you <laughs> invite them to reach their neighbors. Or you tell them, hey, the church is really not about you. It's about the way we are the body of Christ for our neighbors. And they go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't the church I signed up for. This isn't the church. Right. This is unfamiliar. And they get mad because they feel like they're going to lose something familiar, something that feels rooted in all like their home. They're, they're angry and they get angry at the pastor mm -hmm. and the leaders have to learn how to lead people through that anger. And I found myself thinking as I was reading this book, so much of their anger isn't at what I'm leading them to do. It's, it's something deep within them that is, that has to be transformed. For instance, a church that goes through a capital campaign, the pastor always thinks that people are mad about money and they don't want to give money. But the problem is we're all selfish to the core and this project you want to spend it on doesn't benefit me. Right. You know, church planning or building an orphanage doesn't help me. So how, as a leader, we got to go back to breaking our people's hearts for the things that break God's heart. Yes. What would you say to yes. that? Well, and that's, so think about this, like how much, when you start thinking about this, adaptive leadership, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this leadership where you where a healthy living organism to be able to go into a new environment has to adapt. It doesn't become something it's not, but it has to adapt. That adaptation is going to require learning, like because we don't know what it is. It's also going to require loss. You're going to have to let something go. In the same way that a caterpillar has to be transformed to a butterfly, has to let something go. In the same way that we have to let something go. That letting go is really painful. And because we don't have any idea what it's going to be like on the other side, we cling to that past. So having to say to people, hey, God is taking us on a journey that is going to transform us and is going to let us participate in something much bigger than ourselves mm. is so risky. Then you go look at the scriptures and realize this is what Jesus was doing all the time. Mm. Drop your nets, pick up your cross, deny yourself. If a seed falls to the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. But if it doesn't, it remains a single grain. Mm. I, that imagery in John 12 is so rich to me. To think of a grain that doesn't want to go into the soil. What happens to it? It just shrivels up and dies as a grain. You're going to die either way. So the question is, do you want your life to be something that you give over to something bigger than yourself so it can become fruitful? Or do you just want to cling to your little seedness so that you can then shrivel up and die? Most of us cling to this thing we know rather than the transformation we have to go through. Yeah. You know, I was, I heard so much about this, obviously, over the last two years, but you really could see those of us that were scared of the unknown during COVID. Yeah. And we were the ones, and I mean this in no disrespect to anybody who did come back right away, but it was the, the churches that wanted to open as quickly as possible and get back to normality. Yes. And they couched it in, you know, don't forsake the meeting and all the verses we pulled out of context. But it was really, that was the only way I knew how to minister. So let's get yeah. people back in the room. And I don't know if you've heard this. You probably have because of who you deal with. It breaks my heart to hear the churches right now that are shutting down online ministries yeah. to try to get people back in the room. We're not right. putting that genie back in the bottle. Right. All right. So so just think about this. We, because, I mean, look, look, you and I are sitting here having this conversation over Zoom. I wish we were sitting at a coffee table, right? I wish we were having coffee. <laughs> that would be great. I yeah. wish we were just chatting about this, right? 
there's no doubt being face to face is way better than this thing we're doing. But if we didn't have this thing we were doing, we wouldn't have coffee today. Right. Like our schedules wouldn't have lined up. We wouldn't have been able to do this. Nobody would have been able to hear this. It would have just been two new friends chatting whenever our schedules allowed us to. Technology, if used well, can can allow things to happen that wouldn't happen before. The problem is it feels so unfamiliar to us and we long for this thing we're missing that we will shut down new innovations before we've figured out how to use them wisely. Mm. And and um I, I'm I'm of the age where I remember when microwave ovens first came out. Like I was in junior high, right? I do too. And the promises were so someday you'll cook your Thanksgiving turkey in your microwave oven. Nobody would even think that today. But nobody understood that if someday microwave ovens would be something small and cheap and in every home and you'd use it for about five or six things while you also use your regular oven to cook your family meal. We are just so uncomfortable with the new thing that we try to get rid of it. And so we find ourselves today really in this place where the, where the church doesn't even understand how much anxiety is about the past. It's about going back to what's familiar instead of trusting God with the unknown future that God has promised to take us into. The longer I lead, the more I find what you just said to be the most difficult thing to do yeah. because it's not, it's not a science, it's an art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love this quote that you pulled out in the book that says, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb mm-hmm. because it's this constant of pushing and pulling back, pushing and pulling back. And I see people go to, you know, obviously different extremes. So I want to talk about leaders for just a second. Yeah. I was just thinking about, I mean, Jesus, obviously, you know, he's, he, he's, the, he's perfection. Yeah. But you have a guy like John the Baptist who just is out there, yeah. okay, and loses his head, obviously. And then you got a guy like Judas who's really just trying to get Jesus to do what he wanted him to do. Let's start this revolution. Let's get back to what we really wanted. So you have these two different extremes. How does a leader live more in the center of going back and forth slowly without just turning into John the Baptist or Judas, but sticks with Jesus? And that's three J's, so I get bonus points for that as a pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so one way to think about this is my favorite scene about John the Baptist is when he sends his people to Jesus because he's disappointed in Jesus. Yep. Are you the one to come or do we look for someone else? Why? Everybody was looking for a Messiah. The Messiah is the one who is going to make the world right. For John the Baptist, that Messiah meant you're going to come and you're going to call Israel to repentance. Jesus, I'm expecting you to be a little bit more hellfire and damnation. Yeah. Like, and, like, is this really what the kingdom looks like? I'm not sure if I got a picture of it. He is so faithful all the way through that he does lose his head over being faithful to his call, right? That's martyrdom, it's faithfulness. But even he grappled with the fact that he couldn't understand what his cousin was doing. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> Jesus affirms John. He says, look, John's being faithful. He doesn't quite see it. Sometimes I think we need more John the Baptist, hmm. not being wild, but being trusting. Judas is basically the person who says, well, I know how to make this happen. You happen. This happens with power. You start a revolution. We'll, I'll force Jesus' hand. Well, if I put him in a corner, he'll have to do it. We'll start a revolution. He wants to use worldly power. Mm. And that's the one that comes to the worst outcome. I mean, he not only betrays himself, 
he ends up committing suicide because he realizes it's just completely wrong-headed. It's horrible, right? We, I think, are much more tempted than we want to admit to be Judas. We want to use worldly power to force God's hand to get us the vision of the kingdom that we've always expected, rather than having to go through like John the Baptist, mm. questioning, wondering, worrying, and being faithful every step of the way, even if it call, costs us. Uh, I don't know how much of a uh, of a fortune teller you are, but look into the future a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Where do you think we are in in ten years from now? Well, this is what I said. I don't. I'm not good. I'm not good at predicting. I, I, what I what the only the closest thing I can say today is. I really believe that there is going to be a growing hunger for leaders who will give us false certainty. We're going to, the more anxious we get, the more we want people to give us certainty. And, and when we want certainty, we end up blaming. So we're going to end up, we're going to have a growing number of folks who are going to become addicted to the leader who says, I can solve it. I will give you, here's the plan. I got it clear. And it's, that's going to stunt the growth of people who are going to have to learn how to walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to have to learn to trust the Lord through the darkness and take faithful steps. The key, I think the future is going to be built on the depths of our discipleship. Will we learn to be people who trust in the Lord and his word and the spirit into the place where we follow without knowing where it will go. Mm. Um, I think that's the thing we're going to be called to over and over and over again. And I don't know at this moment um, what that's going to look like. Um, When I'm asked by younger leaders, they'll say, you know, Todd, you talk all about this adaptive change. You know, how long do you think the church will be in this? And my answer is always, well, it's like we're in the wilderness and we're trying to get to the promised land. And I'm pretty sure I'm dying in the wilderness. And I'm pretty sure you are too. Um, so the question then is how can we be faithful that there will be a remnant who will carry on? Mm. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, that great passage in Jeremiah for, I know the plans I have for you says the Lord, mm. you know, that's the plan. That's the, that's the verse. Everybody wants you to speak on it. You know, a Christian college commencement <laughs> or baccalaureate or it, it's such a powerful passage. You know, I know the plans I have for you says the Lord's Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. And then it says, so I will come back in 70 years. <laughs> like, you read the passage. It's I will be that, back in 70 years. That doesn't make the magnet. Does it? Yeah. That, does, that doesn't. Right. <laughs> so what do you do in the meantime? You plant gardens, you bless the city you're put in, you, you, you work for the shalom of the place you are. You are faithful 70 years from now. When your grandchildren are here, I'll come back to you, and I will bring you out of this exile. I believe that's the generation we're in. I, it's, I, it's the most depressing thing I say, but it's the most hopeful because I believe that my life and our work is built in something that is built on generations and that we need to think long-term in our churches. I mean, every single time you dedicate a baby or baptize a baby or you welcome a young family, don't think, oh, we just added a new family to our member. Think this is our hope. How do we how do we pass the faith on to this one hmm. who will pass the faith on to their children so that there will be a faith and a mission going forward? Hmm. That's so good. Okay, I want you to speak to two groups of people here. Group one, church leaders. Encourage them, 
tell them what to do next. Uh, you, you've you've tipped off a little bit to what you just said about it's the long game, and if if the Bible tells us anything, it's that Jesus uh, has a long game he's playing here, and and thankfully for us, you know. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. nothing happens quickly. We got forty years here, four hundred years there, seventy years there, yep. and we want it in ten minutes. So, what would you say to leaders, and then what would you say to just people that are in the church, but they're easily frustrated right now. Yeah. Yeah. So the main thing I'd say to leaders is throughout the scriptures, the most cherished leaders are the most humble Mm. and humility is really teachability. So leaders are learners. My, my encouragement to leaders are lead the learning. Um, it's a mistake. We, you know, we, I work at a seminary, everybody who comes to a seminary, somebody said to them, you're the best Christian. I know you should go pro. You should go off to professional Christian school. And we give them a master of divinity and they sound like a superhero. And your job actually is to not be a master. It's to be the master learner. It's to say, look, let's lead the learning. Remember that disciple means learner. Let's work on developing humility and let's learn together as we go. That, that if you create a culture of discipleship, a culture of humility, we will fit, God will meet us there. God gives grace to the uh, grace to the humble, right? He poses the proud and gives grace to the humble. And what I would say to those who are the rest of us are in the midst of these churches is to actually recognize um, this is your ministry too. <laughs> like, like, like I really do believe in the priesthood of all believers. I believe people like you and I, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's, it's to actually be the coaches more than the star players. It's to be the ones who really believe that God's spirit is going to work through our people and to literally invite them into this exact same ministry with us. Come, come be partners. Let's, let's do this together. Let's build communities that witness to the hope of Christ in the world and not trying to recruit recover some glory days, some power, some influence, some prestige. It's it's wrong-headed. Mm, so well said. The book is fantastic, brother. I, I really loved it. Thank you. I, I, I was uh, encouraged. I learned a lot, and I, I've been telling everybody I know about it. Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. I know you're busy. I know you got a lot going on, but keep writing because you write well. Thanks. And it's uh, it's it's really, really helpful. So thank you for being on the show. And I, I can't believe you're just down the road and we've never met. So yeah. we're going to get that cup of coffee face to face. Indeed. Indeed. We got to do it. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Take care. Well, Todd, thanks so much for being on the podcast. So grateful uh, for his input into our listeners' lives and into mine. And if you enjoyed that, make sure that you pick up a copy of his book and even share this episode. Okay, next week, we're going to get a little controversial. Uh, I'm bringing in a woman to help make sense of what has happened as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We don't often talk politics on this conversation, but I know many of our leaders who are leading churches found themselves surprised to see so many differing and adamant positions on this event that took place in our country a few months ago. And she's going to give us some insight. Her name is Teresa Brennan, and she's the president of the Right for Life group here in California. And I think that you're going to learn a lot about different sides of this issue, and particularly what we could do as leaders to help our people. So make sure you check out next week as we walk through this 
pretty interesting topic. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.